Welcome back to the Jordan Syatt Mini Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and welcome to the sixth episode of Jordan Stinks. Now, if you're new to the mini podcast or to the Jordan Stinks series, Jordan Stinks is a mini series that I do inside of the mini podcast. Basically, every once in a while, maybe around once a month or so right now, I go to my Instagram, which by the way, if you don't follow me on Instagram, go do that right now. It's Syatt Fitness, S-Y-A-T-T Fitness. I go on my Instagram story and I basically ask people to tell me in a question box what they disagree with me on. And I, I basically start every episode like this explaining why I think it's so important to confront these disagreements in an open honest and civilized discussion because nowadays we tend to put ourselves in these vacuums and what I mean by that is we put ourselves in these vacuums of ideas, vacuums of morals, vacuums of ethics, vacuums of knowledge in which we surround ourselves with people both in person and online who agree with us and that makes sense. I think it's human nature to surround yourself with people who hear this, who share the same morals and ideals and ethics and knowledge because if you only surrounded yourself with people who disagreed with you, that would be a very volatile situation. But it's very important to understand and to be able to have discussions openly and in a civilized way with people who disagree with you because if you can't do that, then you're never open to learning. You're never open to, to the possibility of being wrong. And if your only interactions with people who disagree with you are volatile and angry and upset, that doesn't bode well for the future for any of us. So I really like this idea of being able to openly ask people to tell me what they disagree with me on so I can discuss it and be very open to the possibility of being wrong, be very open to the idea of learning something new, and I hope you find it helpful. And I also just want to clarify, if you ever decide to input what you disagree with me on, I will never, ever, ever get mad at you about it. And I will never, ever, ever announce your name or your Instagram handle publicly. That will be completely private between you and I. My goal here is not to call anyone out. It's not to blast anybody publicly. It's solely so that we can have these open, honest discussions. So with that being said, I got a handful of responses. So let's see what people disagree with me about. All right, so this is a good one to begin with. And to be fair, it doesn't look like a disagreement as much as just a question. So I'm going to read what they said. They wrote, I still don't understand the point of weighing every day. Can't you see a trend weighing weekly? To answer your question, yes, you absolutely can see a trend weighing weekly. I don't recommend it for a number of reasons I'll discuss here. But yes, you absolutely can see a trend weighing weekly. And if you prefer to weigh weekly as opposed to daily, that's totally fine and 100% up to you. From my personal experience, I've found weighing daily is better for the vast majority of people. But let's get into it. And I'll start by saying this. When we're looking for the trend, we're not looking for a trend on a day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week basis. The trend we're looking for in weight is month to month. So when you're analyzing your weight trend, you want to analyze it based on what you weighed on June 1st to what you weigh on July 1st. 
what you weigh on July 1st to what you weigh on August 1st, what you weighed on June 2nd to what you weigh on July 2nd, what you weigh on July 2nd to what you weigh on August 2nd, and so on and so forth. People really run into big issues when they start trying to compare their weight day to day. That is by far the worst way to compare your weight trend. You weigh in on June 1st and then you weigh in on June 2nd and you expect to drop. It's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. You didn't give yourself enough time to expect that much of a drop at all. Not to mention your weight, as you know, is going to fluctuate for any number of reasons far outside of simply fat gain or fat loss. So to expect your weight to immediately go down one day later, even if you were perfect with your nutrition, is illogical. That doesn't make sense. So even if you weigh day to day, that doesn't mean that's how we're examining the trend. The trend, whether you weigh day to day or week to week, should only be examined month to month. And when I work with clients in the inner circle, I will always tell them your first month of weigh-in data means nothing. And they always get confused when I say that at first, but it's important because what that means is from the first of the month to the 31st of the month, you are not allowed to be discouraged by your weight because that if you get discouraged by your weight in those first 31 days, it means you're comparing it to a day prior or to a day previously in that month, and that's not what we're doing. I want you to compare month-to-month weights. That's how we get the best idea of a true, honest trend. That is very, very important to understand. Now, going back to... The question, can't you see a trend weighing weekly? Yes, you can. And I actually used to do that years years and years and years ago, 2011, 2012. I would look for a week-to-week trend in my clients because that's what I was taught. I was taught that losing an average of half a pound to two pounds a week was really good. So I did what I was taught and looked for that week-to-week trend downwards. The issue is, with experience over time, I learned that's not what happens. I learned that the trends that we see, they take more time to really get a better picture of. And you might be 10 days into your new fat loss phase, and your weight might spike up 4 pounds to higher than it was on day 1. And people freak out when that happens. And they think, oh, it's not working. Something is wrong with me or my body or my metabolism or my thyroid or this this method doesn't work for me based on a random weight spike. And they freak out. And then they quit. And so I went from looking at the trend weekly to doing it biweekly. Every two weeks I would do it. So then I started analyzing every two weeks. And that worked well, but there were still these random weight spikes that were just unaccounted for and people would get really upset about them and they would allow them to discourage them and demotivate them and cause them to quit. Not to mention the role of the menstrual cycle in your weight. If you're going through your menstrual cycle or even if you're postmenopausal, oftentimes you will still have a similar weight fluctuation pattern to when you were going through your menstrual cycle. So, and considering I work with mainly women, about 75% women, when I was looking at things on a bi-weekly basis every two weeks, 
and then they were going through their menstrual cycle once a month and I saw these huge weight spikes, I realized this is a very bad idea to be weighing and measuring and analyzing the trend specifically week to week or biweekly. And that's when I eventually moved it to analyzing the trend on a month to month basis. Now, within that month, I want to get as many data points as possible because it doesn't take much logical understanding to realize that more data points is better than fewer data points, right? It's like if you could have, if you're trying to analyze a pattern of anything, if you're trying to analyze a pattern of literally anything in life, you will 100% of the time get more data points than fewer data points because more data points see, allows you to see a much more clear picture of what the pattern actually is. So if, if, if you were in a competition to figure out what the pattern of something was, you're going to want 31 data points as opposed to only four data points because with 31, you can get a much more clear picture of what the pattern and the trend actually is. So in terms of your question, can't you see a trend weighing weekly? Yes, you can see a trend weighing weekly, but it will take you longer to see that trend. It will take you a longer amount of time to see the trend, to see the pattern, because you're getting far fewer data points than if you were weighing every single day. And when you weigh every day and analyze that month to month, now you have a much more clear picture of what to expect on a day-to-day basis with your weight fluctuations. Now you can actually predict what's going to happen with your weight before it happens so you're not discouraged by it. And I really think that's the main reason I very strongly encourage people to weigh daily is to remove the fear of the scale. This, maybe I should have brought this up first, but if you're still listening, this is probably the single most important part of it is people are scared of the scale, which boggles my mind then that there are fitness professionals suggesting people just ignore the scale because that is the literal worst thing you could do. And allow me to explain, especially if you disagree. One of the major things people will say as a reason for why you shouldn't care what the scale says is they say, well, the scale, it's, it's just a piece of plastic. It doesn't define who you are. So why w- would you let it bother you? you? Just ignore it. And in my mind, I'm like, you're exactly right. It's just a piece of plastic. It doesn't tell you your self-worth. It doesn't define who you are. So why would you allow what that thing says to dictate your emotions? The answer is not to ignore it. The answer is to be able to face it without fear. And this is just basic exposure therapy 101. If you look at basic psychology and human behavior on how to help people overcome a fear, There is not a psychologist worth their salt who would ever recommend anybody who is scared of something to just ignore the problem. If someone's scared of spiders, do you ever think a psychologist would say, well, you know, we should just make sure you're never anywhere near a spider. You just don't want to go near spiders. Of course not. First, they might sit them down and they might show them a drawing of a spider. And then they might show them a picture of a spider. And then the next session, they might show them a 
TV show with a spider. And then the next session, they might say, in the building across the street, there is a spider. And then in the next session, they might say, in this building, there's a spider in a cage. And then the next session, they might say, in the next room, there's a spider in a cage. And then in the next session, they might have a, a spider in a cage in their room, but it's covered by a cloth. And then in the next session, they might take the cloth off so they can see the spider, but there's no way it's going to get out. And in the next session, they might get the, the cage literally right next to you. And then in the next session, they might have you literally holding the spider in your hand. And that happens over a period of time. But that's a very crude example of what exposure therapy is, where you don't ignore the problem. You expose yourself to the problem. You find the fear and you expose yourself to it. That is the only way to overcome it. If you're scared of the scale and you, and you are told to ignore the scale or avoid the scale, all that does is create a bigger fear. As Hermione Granger says in Harry Potter, arguably the, the best line throughout the entire series, fear of a name only increases fear of the thing itself. People were scared to say the name Voldemort. But Hermione very rightly said and very courageously said, fear of a name only increases fear of the thing itself. You have to expose yourself to it in order to overcome it. And if you're the kind of person who says, well, the scale doesn't define you, so you shouldn't use it, that is a completely and utterly flawed, illogical way of thinking. How much weight you deadlift doesn't define you, but you're probably tracking the weights that you're using for your deadlift and hopefully trying to increase that doesn't define who you are as a person. If how much weight you, you deadlift defines who you are as a person, that's a very, very shallow, shallow individual, right? Hopefully there's a lot more depth to you than simply how much weight you can lift. But you're probably trying to keep track of your weights and lift more weight. Just because something individually doesn't define who you are doesn't mean you shouldn't pay attention to it. And it doesn't mean that it's bad or evil or you shouldn't do it. If you're scared of it, it means you should face that fear and work to overcome it. And that's where I'm such a huge proponent of weighing daily because it requires you to face your fear, realize how illogical it is, realize how inconsequential the scale really is so then you can step on it, look at each weigh-in as simply a data point, and from there then you can actually start to look at the trend month to month, not day to day, not week to week, not biweekly, but month to month. And then you can start to get really phenomenal progress and idea of, of the progress and consistency that you're having so you can continue to work towards achieving your goals. That's why I'm such a huge fan of weighing daily. So moving on to the next one. Uh, someone wrote, watermelon and other melons are the worst fruits changed my mind. All right. <laughs> um, this is crazy because watermelon is literally my favorite fruit ever. And there's no one could possibly change my mind. Watermelon is the best fruit. Just, I'm going to put that out there. If you agree with me, if you think watermelon is the best fruit, DM me on Instagram right now. Go to Syatt Fitness, S-Y-A-T-T -T Fitness on Instagram. DM me and say, yes, listen to your last episode of Jordan Stinks. Watermelon is the best. I mean, realistically, how could watermelon not be the best? It's, it's 140 calories for an entire pound. It's delicious. 
it's so filling. It's like the most refreshing fruit there is. I mean, I'm not going to say that, you know, cantaloupe and, and the other melons are, are phenomenal, but watermelon, yeah, it's absolutely by far the best. So <laughs> definitely going to go against you on that one. Um, okay. Someone wrote, I disagree with you that supplements are useless. This one seems to come up almost every single time I do a Jordan Stinks, and uh, I keep having to reiterate it, so I'm really going to go in on this right now. Um, I have never said ever that supplements are useless, not once, mainly because there are many supplements that are very effective, and they work very well. My issue is when people look to supplements as their first action step rather than their habits. Okay, my issue is when someone decides to start getting their health in check and the first thing they do is go to GNC or vitamin shop to look for the the best supplements to buy instead of thinking, okay, what foods can I cook? How can I get better sleep? What changes can I make to incorporate more movement and exercise into my schedule? Those should be your first action steps is what habits can you change to make you a healthier individual, a stronger individual, a more active individual, more mobile individual? How do you get more stretching in? How do you get more strength training in? How do you get more high quality sleep? How do you eat better food on a consistent basis? Not, hey, I'm going to go drop $1,500 at GNC and stack my, my closet with all these supplements that I'm probably going to stop using in the next two weeks anyway. It's like, the way I look at supplements are this. Supplements are great, and some of them can be very effective. But if you first do not have your sleep in check, your nutrition in check, and your exercise in check, you have no business spending money on supplements because they're not going to help. Supplements will not help you if you are first not helping yourself. That's really what it boils down to. Now, people ask me for my recommendations on supplements a lot, so I will say I tend to prefer Legion supplements, Legion athletic supplements. I've always found they tend to be the highest quality. They taste amazing. I'm a huge fan of the company and the brand and the owner. Um, personally, for me, I'll, I'll tell you which ones I mainly use from Legion. I mean, their, their protein powders, I'm a big fan of. By the way, just the other day, I used their vegan protein powder for the first time, and I didn't realize it was vegan. My girlfriend, she was like, did you know that's, that's a vegan protein powder? I didn't even realize it. I just took it out of the, the closet and poured it in some oatmeal, and it was delicious. It was phenomenal. And I've tried vegan protein powders in the past from other companies, and they tasted just miserable. So for whatever it's worth, if you're looking for a vegan protein powder, the one at Legion delicious, but any of their proteins I'm a huge fan of. I take their multivitamin, I take their fish oil, and I also take their joint support. And this is something that I didn't take for a long time, but I've been really training jujitsu very hard. And I've been having some issues with my elbows and, and really mainly my elbows. And anyone who's done jujitsu, uh, you'll understand exactly what I'm talking about because a lot of jujitsu, especially in the gi, uh, which the gi is basically, you know, if you think of someone who's doing karate, then they have that uniform on, oftentimes that black or that white uniform that they tie the belt around. It's like you wear that when you do jujitsu in the gi and you're grabbing onto it and you're holding it and you're squeezing your opponent's gi and you're tugging on it and pulling it. So 
a lot of it is based on the grip strength and it's just so much grip and, and tugging and pulling that it can be a little bit difficult on your joints and elbows specifically. So I've been taking the joint support from Legion and that's, I can't tell if it's placebo or not, but it's been working phenomenally. So to answer the question, supplements are not useless. There are other amazing supplements as well. I don't take beta alanine because I hate the way that it makes me feel. You get like sort of tinglies on your skin. Uh, but beta alanine is a very effective and useful supplement. Creatine is a very effective and useful supplement, especially if you want to improve your maximal strength and power output. Um, so if you want to go with the brand that I trust, Legion Athletics. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes of this episode if you want to use uh, the link that I have. You can get a discount on that page if you would like. But if not, any of the supplements I've recommended, protein, creatine, beta alanine, um, those are the main ones I recommend and they work regardless of what company you get them from. But I trust Legion the most. So I'll put that link in the show notes. Um, so to answer your question, I don't think they're useless. I just think most people should focus less on supplements and more on actually creating better habits. All right, let's see. Okay, someone wrote, people actually do care if coaches or trainers have six-pack abs. Now, I can't tell if this person who wrote this is a, is a coach or a trainer or not. I think they are. Actually, they absolutely are because coach is in the their handle. So they're definitely a coach, uh, which I will say, it definitely makes you bias when you're saying this. Uh, and that doesn't mean it's bad, but we're going to go through this. And the reason that this person has said people actually do care if coaches or trainers have a six-pack is because I've been saying a lot recently in the last few years that no one cares if you have a six-pack. Now, Clearly, that's a very dogmatic statement. And I would, if I was like in a one-on-one -on -one discussion with someone, of course, there are some people who are going to care if you have a six-pack. What I would amend my original statement to say is no one who cares whether or not you have a six-pack, wow, I just sort of mumbled over my words on that one. I'm going to say it again. No one who cares whether or not you have a six pack matters. Okay, so if someone cares that you don't have a six pack, for example, and you're a coach, they're not the client that you want. You don't want someone to hire you simply because you have a six pack. Because what's gonna happen is if someone's hiring you because they want to look like you, they're setting up from the very beginning with very poor, unrealistic expectations because they're not going to look like you because they are not you. So from the get-go, they're hiring you because you have a six-pack. It's like, okay, cool, I want that too. That's not going to be your best client. So from the coaching perspective, yeah, sure. There are absolutely some people who care if you have a six-pack or not. But if you're trying to build a sustainable business long-term that helps as many people as possible, I wouldn't encourage you to target that crowd of people because it will not serve you. I promise you that. And if you're just, if you're not a coach, you're just an everyday individual, 
There, of course, there are some people who care if you have a six pack or not, of course. But if those are the people you're surrounding yourself with, that's your fault. If you're surrounding yourself with people who care about your current level of body fat, whether or not you have ab veins or a six pack, that is on you because you are willingly surrounding yourself with people who are so superficial and so vain that they care about your body fat percentage. So yes, there are some people in the world who do care. They're not the majority of people. Most people really don't care at all. Just the vast majority of people don't give a shit if you have a six-pack or not. And that's just the truth. Most people who have a six-pack, they do it because they think other people care, and they do it because they want to impress other people and because they are insecure about it. But most people really don't give a shit. And the vast majority of people... If they had to choose between someone with a six-pack and someone who's intelligent, someone with a six-pack and someone who has a great personality, and I'm not saying these things are mutually exclusive because they're not, but if they had to choose between you having a six-pack or you being a great individual, they're going to take the great individual every single time. And if you happen to find someone who would rather have someone with a six-pack than being a good person and you decide to stick around that person, that's your fault because you shouldn't be hanging around those people. So that's where I stand on that one. Uh, let's see. We'll answer maybe one or two more. Okay. Someone wrote, tackling binging by switching from calorie counting to three plates, two snacks. It drives me insane. So what they're saying is, I disagree that you insist on tackling binging by switching from calorie counting to three plates, two snacks. It drives me insane. Um, it's a good point. And what I'll say is this, and I've said this time and again, there are many reasons why someone might be binge eating far beyond simply a poor relationship with food, right? I mean, there are reasons someone might struggle with binge eating that has to do with past trauma in their life and they're using food as a coping mechanism. So that, that's a very real possibility. And I would never, ever say that my methods will help solve that cause of binge eating at all. That is not what I'm an expert in, and I need to make that very clear, and I try to do my best. I try to do my best to explain that as often as possible. That being said, the three plates, two snacks method, it works very, very well. It's not foolproof. It won't work for everybody. But the reason I use it and recommend it so often is because it works so damn well at such a high percentage. Again, it won't work for everyone and it's not for everyone, especially if your cause of binging has nothing to do with or little to do with having a poor relationship with food. Maybe it has to do with a past trauma or something in your life. But to be fair, the people who I talk to on my podcast and my inner circle members, they're coming to me with poor relationships with the food oftentimes because of body image, oftentimes because they were brought up with poor relationships with food, and for those people, or oftentimes because they got obsessive with calorie counting, and for those people, the three plates, two snacks method works very, very well. So for whoever is saying this, if it doesn't work well for you, absolutely do not use it. I strongly urge you 
to listen to your gut, listen to your instinct, and if it makes things worse for you, then scrap it. Do not use it. I would never, ever, ever say that it works for everybody, and I would way rather you find something that works best for you than only do something because I'm recommending it, even if that method is hurting you. Do not do that method if it's not good for you. But I think it's important to clarify it. I've never said, nor will I ever say, if you want to solve binge eating, you must do the three plates, two snacks method. That I, I will never say that. I have never say, said that, and I will never say that. It's just one method that I use that works very, very well, especially if your struggles around food stem from body image, obsessive compulsive calorie tracking, and just a general poor relationship with food. Um, all right, let's see. Why does your diet when losing weight need to be sustainable forever? I'm not doing it forever. This is another really, really good question, and I'm glad that this was asked. Um, I've said pretty consistently that if the methods are not sustainable, the results are not sustainable. And what I mean by that is if you are going to use a method to lose weight that you cannot sustain long-term, then the results that you get from that method will not be sustainable. For example, let's take juice cleanses or detox teas or whatever, where you are essentially eating next to nothing and you're just drinking juices or doing only smoothies. Or maybe we could use keto as an example as well, where you eliminate essentially all carbohydrates from your diet. You can only eat proteins and fats, no carbs, right? So whatever method you're using, if you're using something that is very, very, very restrictive and completely eliminates an entire food group or multiple food groups from your nutrition, if you can't sustain that for the rest of your life, then the results you get from following that method will be unsustainable. And I very much believe that. I very, very, very much believe that. That being said, the person who wrote this makes a wonderful point, and I should clarify. Because if what I wrote was inherently true across the board, then nobody would be able to lose fat. Because part of fat loss is being in a calorie deficit, right? And we all know that if you're not in a calorie deficit, you aren't going to be losing fat, period, end of story. And what I said is if the methods are unsustainable, the results are unsustainable. So under my logic that I said, that would mean that if you can't sustain a calorie deficit forever, then you won't be able to maintain your fat loss. And that's clearly not true. So what this person wrote is accurate. I, was, I am wrong in saying that just blanket statement of if the methods are unsustainable, the results are unsustainable because that's not true. And there's actually a considerable amount of research. For example, if we look at people who have a significant amount of body fat to lose, they have a very high body fat percentage, they are significantly overweight, and, and for health concerns and for their own personal reasons, they need to lose a lot of body fat. There's a tremendous amount of research that shows more of a rapid fat loss protocol where you significantly and drastically reduce calories very low for a brief amount of time is actually better for them than doing it more slowly and progressively and quote unquote sustainably. There are many reasons for that. 
not least of which being if someone is very, very overweight, has a lot of body fat to lose, I mean, they might be at risk of serious health concerns immediately, so they need to fix that as quickly as possible. Their, their joints and their body might be in serious pain. Walking and moving might really, really cause serious pain. I've worked with people who had trouble literally getting out of a chair, getting up off the toilet. Walking for a few minutes a day was very painful, so losing weight very quickly can be very beneficial for them to ease up the stress on their joints. And then, not least of which, <clears throat> excuse me, not least of which, losing a lot of weight very quickly for them will show them that they can actually do this, that it's possible for them to succeed when previously maybe they didn't think it was possible before. And that might be the most important of all. Because if they don't believe that in their ability to succeed, then they're not going to try at all. So there is, there are definitely circumstances in which doing something that is unsustainable for a brief period of time can still allow you to make progress that will be sustainable in the future. The issue is we have to sort of find the balance, right? So let's use the example of someone who has a lot of body fat to lose and we're going to radically reduce their calories even though the radically reduced calories are not sustainable clearly forever what's important to recognize is we're not eliminating any foods in particular from their diet they can eat whatever they want to eat as long as they fall within that calorie range then from there, once they've lost enough weight and body fat, then we can start to add calories back into their diet to make it more sustainable from a caloric perspective. But never once did we completely eliminate certain foods from their diet. And this, in my mind, is what makes that method sustainable is because the only variable we need to manipulate is their calories. Whereas something like keto or juice cleanses or detox teas or any of that stuff which creates this false idea that a certain food is inherently bad for you, that you can never eat it ever. Well, now you're following a method that is creating guilt and shame around eating a specific food so that if, God forbid, you end up eating that food later in life, well, now you think you failed and you think you screwed up. So then you give up altogether. So... I'm really glad you asked this question because I think it's important for me to clarify. There, there are definitely times in which doing something unsustainable can be beneficial for people. That being said, I think the vast majority of time, doing something more sustainable in order to achieve your goals will likely lead to greater sustainability long-term than doing something so strict and so restrictive that it makes it difficult to transfer into more of a maintenance phase. And I think the, the simplest explanation of this is if you do something completely and utterly restrictive and unsustainable in order to achieve your goals, then at no point in time did you practice or create the habits you'll need in order to sustain it long term. So for example, if you're just doing keto in order to lose a lot of weight very quickly, and then once you're done with keto, you imagine that you'll go back to eating carbohydrates again. Well, you didn't practice eating in a way that's going to allow you to maintain that low of body fat percentage while eating carbs. You just completely eliminated them in order to achieve that lower body weight 
and now you think you're going to add them back and just be okay with the with the weight gain and the water retention and all that that's that's not very likely and just from a realistic perspective for me i've found that finding methodologies that are more sustainable long term will lead to better results that you can sustain long term as opposed to doing something completely unsustainable short term and hoping for long-term sustainability afterwards. Again, there there are clarifications that need to be made and there are exceptions to the rule, but I hope what I said makes sense. So with that being said, this is the end of the sixth episode of Jordan Stinks. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. Have a wonderful day. I'll talk to you soon.